So the Day of Atonement is undeniably the most holy day of the year in the Old Covenant. This was a solemn day, a day of self-denial, a day of fasting, a day in which no work could be done. This holy day lasted 24 hours from sunset to sunset, and throughout the day's activities, the spotlight was firmly placed on the high priest as he made atonement for the sins of the people. The high priest had an extremely difficult task. He was required to flawlessly execute God's step-by-step instructions, making sacrifices and offerings on behalf of the people. The first thing on his list was to ritually bathe himself in the bronze basin before he clothed himself in the ceremonial linen attire. In once dressed, he sacrificed a bull as a sin offering for himself and for his family. Then the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the bull and the incense that created a cloud of smoke as a protective barrier between him and God. And it was from within this cloud that the high priest sprinkled the blood of the bull seven times upon the mercy seat to atone for his sins. The mercy seat was the cover for the Ark of the Covenant, where the two cherubim sat and peered upon the Shekinah glory of the Lord. The high priest then returned to the courtyard, and he cast lots for two goats, selecting one as a sin offering and the other as the scapegoat. The first goat was then sacrificed, and the high priest re-entered into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood of the sin offering in front of and upon the mercy seat. His next step was to cleanse the altar of burnt offering with the blood of the bull and of the goat. The high priest then placed his hands upon the head of the scapegoat, and he confessed the sins of Israel upon it. The scapegoat was then taken into the wilderness and released, signifying that the sins of Israel over the past year have been separated from them. Finally, the high priest put his his regular priestly garments on, and then he sacrificed two rams as burnt offerings for himself and the people. This was the only day of the year when the high priest was permitted to enter into the Holy of Holies and to stand before the Ark of the Covenant in the mercy seat. This day was a solemn reminder for the Israelites that their sins required a blood sacrifice. They were able to see with their very own eyes that the wages of sin is death as they watched the blood flow from the bull and the goat and the rams. The day of atonement reminded God's people that sin equals death. Yet this day provided a glimpse of God's grace because the death that they deserved was being transferred to another. The Israelites were witnessing a shadow of substitutionary atonement year by year. I just offered a brief summary of the Day of Atonement to open the door and to welcome you into Hebrews chapter 9. Once you enter into this room, before you is an anonymous author who's writing to a group of Jewish converts to Christianity approximately 30 years after the death of Christ his resurrection, and his ascension. He's writing to these believers because they were struggling to grow in their knowledge of Christ. They knew a ton about the old covenant, 
rituals, and laws, but they struggled to connect the dots between the prophets, priests, and kings of the Old Covenant to the perfect prophet, priest, and king of Christ. They had been believers for at least a decade, and they should have been mature at this point in time. Matter of fact, they should have known enough to be teachers at this point, yet they were infants in their faith. They were confused, likely misled. They were laying hold of Christ with one hand, yet struggled to move forward because they clung to dear life to Moses with the other. They were straddling a fence with one foot in the old covenant and were only dipping their toes in the new. So the author of Hebrews has systematically dismantled everything that they placed hope in, including angels, Abraham, Moses, the Levitical priests, the tabernacle, and all of the sacrifices. The author has been laboring to show them all the ways that the old covenant has been superseded with the inauguration of the new covenant. The author has been unpacking detailed arguments throughout the last nine chapters, and we are arriving today at the pinnacle of his argument, detailing that salvation has been perfected with the one-time sacrifice of Christ. So as I mentioned, we're presenting the sermon in three defenses. The first defense that we are going to look at is that a better sacrifice is required to purify sins from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. Now as we begin to examine this section, we're immediately struck by a somewhat difficult statement to interpret in verse 23. When the author mentions this, he said it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The copies of heavenly things is pretty straightforward because the author just spent the better part of chapter 9 describing the tabernacle and all of its furnishings contained within. The entire tabernacle was designed by God to provide the Israelites with a copy and a shadow of the heavenly reality to demonstrate his holiness and his separation from sin. All of the furnishings in the tabernacle were made with human hands and were required to be cleansed with blood. This ritual cleansing occurred when the tabernacle was first constructed and then was repeated year after year as the priests ministered within it. So the copies of heavenly things requiring cleansing is pretty easy to grasp. But the challenging part of this text is when the author states that the heavenly things themselves are purified with better sacrifices than these. Immediately two questions comes to mind as we examine verse 23. The first question is this, what are the heavenly things themselves referring to? Is the author referring to heaven itself? If so, then we must ask ourselves, why does heaven need to be cleansed at all? Is there sin present in heaven? That's the implication of that. The second question is this, why does the author use sacrifices in a plural form inferring that multiple sacrifices were required to cleanse the heavenly things. This is problematic because we know that Christ died once. Multiple commentators have advanced ideas on interpreting verse 23, and I've packaged the top three for you in the form of a chart for your reading pleasure and edification. Speaking Kyle's love language. 
So the first view, view one, suggests that sin was somehow present in heaven and that Christ's death provided a literal cleansing of heaven itself. For me, this appears to be the least probable because we don't see anything, any compelling evidence in Scripture to indicate that heaven was tainted by sin at all. The second view suggests that heavenly things applies to us, literally, our defiled consciences, which needed to be cleansed in order for the Holy Spirit to abide within us. In addition, this view insists that we needed cleansing in order to enter the presence of heaven upon our glorification. There's some credibility to this because the author mentioned previously how the sacrificial system only offered external cleansing but did nothing to cleanse the conscience of the believers in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9 and verse 14. However, I think that there's a better option. And this is the third view. The third view suggests that the author references heavenly things in a figurative manner to strengthen his argument. And I agree with this position. To understand this figurative language, I need you to place yourself into the life of an Israelite and consider the legal requirements of corporate worship. We're going to bring up a picture of a chart of the tabernacle. Now, as you can see there, there was the the courtyard, there was the altar, the bronze basin, there was the tabernacle with the holy place and the holy of holies. The tabernacle itself was both a house of worship and it was a butcher shop. Some of us may have this idealistic, sanitized view of the tabernacle in our minds, but the reality is it was a bloody, disgusting mess. This was intentional so that we could see sin the same way that God sees our sin. The Old Covenant contained detailed instructions for burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings. You see that laid out in Leviticus. Day in and day out, the priests were covered in blood as they offered sacrifices to the Lord on behalf of the people. Another tabernacle was a copy of the heavenly throne room and the dwelling place of God. Yet the average Israelite, they couldn't even come close to it. The closest they could come to the tabernacle was the courtyard as they brought their sacrifices. The only one who was let inside the the first room of the tabernacle were the priests who were working with the showbread and with with the lampstand and with the incense. The only one permitted to enter into the Holy of Holies, the second room, was the high priest, and his entrance was only after he made sacrifices for himself on the Day of Atonement. Now, as we look at verse 23, and we see heavenly things requiring better sacrifices, which is plural, I would argue that the author is using a very subtle form of an argument from lesser to greater. The logic works like this. If human priests required sacrifices before they could enter the earthly tabernacle, which is only a copy, then heaven itself, by necessity, requires infinitely better sacrifices before any high priest can even hope of entering on our behalf. This is brilliant because it draws your mind from the multitude of sacrifices under the Old Covenant and then intensifies the importance of requiring better sacrifices, plural again, because we no longer are dealing with man-made copies. This is the real deal. This is heaven itself. And then the readers are pressed to see the need for better sacrifices before we can have a mediator enter into heaven, which is the reality And once the readers have their minds wrapped around the better sacrifices required for entrance into the heavenly reality, then they're left to marvel at the perfection of Christ who sacrificed himself once. 
and has entered into heaven to stand before God on our behalf. This leads us to defense number two, the second defense. And that is that a better high priest is required to mediate between God and man. We see this in verse 24, which states that Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The author is continuing to parallel the Day of Atonement with the high priest entering into the Holy of Holies to Christ ascending into heaven and entering the very presence of God in his throne room. And I would like for us to gain an appreciation for how big of a deal this is to have a mediator representing us before God. Let's put ourselves once again into the mind of the Israelites and visualize what it meant to be reliant upon a high priest as a mediator. For context, there were over two million Israelites that were led out of Egypt during the Exodus. As you can see in this image, they were camped all around the tabernacle. They could see with their very own eyes that the presence of God was with them. They were so near to God and the place that he dwelled that it was just a rock's throw away. However, none of them could actually reach him. None of them were able to come into God's presence. Aaron's sons tried this, and it resulted in their death. Although God was in their midst, he may as well have been a billion light years away because none of the people had direct access to God. None of them could come into his presence. Only the high priest did. And he did this on the Day of Atonement. And they were completely reliant upon the high priest to accomplish all of the painstaking details that God required as he made sacrifices on their behalf. Their only hope that their sins were forgiven rested on the abilities of their high priest to follow God's instructions as he entered into the Holy of Holies. The only thing that people could do on the Day of Atonement was to watch, to wait, and to trust it must have seemed like an eternity as they mourned their sins and waited for their high priest to come out from the Holy of Holies after he sprinkled the blood of the sin offering upon the mercy seat. And once their high priest reappeared from the Holy of Holies, their mourning turned to joy because their sins had been atoned for. The Day of Atonement was an exercise in contrast. It began with grief and sorrow and mourning, which turned to rejoicing when they saw their high priest return after making atonement for their sins. Yet the joy of having their sins forgiven would disappear like a bar of soap after a hard day's wash. Just as they thought it was finished, they would soon realize it was just beginning. It wouldn't be long before the Lord's name was taken in vain, before a child was disobedient, before a husband lusted, a wife envied, a son stole, and a daughter lied. The slate that they thought was wiped clean would quickly fill once again with a long list containing every sinful thought, every careless word, and every wicked deed. They would have no other choice but to wait until next year to experience just a momentary reprieve 
from the reality that their sins had upon their consciences. They had to wait until the next day of atonement to experience a temporary relief once again. The atonement the high priest offered had limitations because there was an expiration date built into it, forcing it to be repeated each and every year. Yet there was something else that was lacking in the high priest's work. The author reminds us in chapter, chapter 9, verse 7, that these sacrifices only covered the sins of ignorance. Moses detailed the limitations in the sacrifices in Numbers chapter 15, verse 30 to 31. He stated, but the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he's despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. There was no provision in the old covenant to atone for willful sins, sins that we know are wrong, yet we choose to do them anyways. The high priest had nothing to offer them. There was no hope for them. There was no remedy for the shame that weighed upon their conscience. And so this cycle continued. Year after year, the sins of ignorance were cleansed while the weight of guilt increased. And so history goes. There was a long, long line of priests that offered sacrifices each year, generating a mountain of carcasses and a sea of blood that could never fully and finally deal with sin. The constant cycle of death spotlights the weakness of the old covenant and was intended to force these Israelites to look with longing expectation for a better high priest who offers a better sacrifice. Hebrews has been building up to this point. The old covenant priests were just like the rest of us, and they died like the rest of us, and were incapable to stand as mediators eternally before God. All along the way, the old covenant pointed to the need for a better high priest to offer a better sacrifice and to stand in the gap between sinful humans and holy God. True Lasting, eternal reconciliation and forgiveness of sins could only be made possible by a perfect high priest who offers the perfect sacrifice and is capable of standing in the presence of God on our behalf. This brings us to defense number three. And that is that there is only one high priest capable of offering the perfect sacrifice. We see this in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 25 to 26. Rabbinical records indicate that there were over 80 high priests that served in the tabernacle, beginning with Aaron in the desert, spanning all the way to the temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed some 1,500 years later. Generation after generation, these priests performed the ritual sacrifices of countless animals as they entered into the Holy of Holies. Year after year, the cycle repeated and blood was spilled on account of sin. Had the work of the priests and the sacrifices actually been effective at dealing with sin, there would be no need to do it all over again. And to prove this point, the author employs a little rhetoric by stating an obvious fact, contrasting the inferiority of the earthly priest to the superiority of Christ. His argument in verses 25 to 26 goes like this. If Christ were anything less than perfect then he would be on par with the earthly priests, 
and would have needed to repeatedly sacrifice himself from the foundation of the world. Now, this may sound silly, but the author was making a profound theological point. The point is this, is that no more sacrifices are required for sin, period, it is done. His other point is this, that Christ has suffered and died once, he will not suffer again. Now, as we read verse 26, our hearts should leap for joy. As we see that he has appeared once for all time at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is the climax of the argument of Hebrews that he's been building up to. That Christ is the only one capable of offering the sacrifice which is himself for all time. Christ has perfected salvation because he is both the high priest and he is the sacrifice combined in one. He is both the offerer and he is the offering. Jesus, our great high priest, offered the ultimate sacrifice, which was himself. He willingly laid down his life. He did this of his own accord. And he did this just once. And it was so complete and so perfect that no other sacrifice ever needed to be offered again. Jesus has fully and finally dealt with sin. And when our great high priest offered himself, he proclaimed, It is finished. And it was. But here is more great news. Not only did Christ atone for the sins of ignorance, but he also atoned for the willful sins that no other high priest in the blood of animals ever could. In doing so, he has entered the one place that no human being has access to, and that is the very throne room of God, not the copy, not the tabernacle made with human hands, but rather the actual throne room of God in heaven. And he is there in the very presence of God, mediating on behalf of the saints. So this brings us to two application points. They're rather long applications, but nonetheless... We're going to pull them directly from the text from verses 27 and 28. The first application is this. There is an appointment with death coming for each of us. Are you ready for this day? Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 states, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. So this first application point is geared primarily for for non-Christians. Perhaps you're a skeptic. Maybe you're just curious about Christianity. Maybe you're one of the fortunate ones who has a spouse who cares so deeply about your salvation that they drag you to church every week as they pray that the Lord would open your eyes. Some of you were raised in a Christian home and outwardly professed to be a believer, yet you know deep inside that you haven't repented of your sins. This application is for each of you. Please listen to this warning. There is a direct connection between the second coming of Christ in verse 28 to the judgment in verse 27. The author states that he is not coming again to deal with sin. This means that Christ is not coming again in the humiliation of the incarnation to suffer and die again. And just as all humans die once, so Christ only died once. 
He came once to serve, once to preach the gospel, once to suffer, and once to die. And that chapter is over, never to be repeated again. Christ will never come again in the humiliation that he endured in his first appearance. When he returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord who possesses all judgment, all power, and all authority. He will conquer his enemies and he will judge the wicked during his second coming. And I want to state this as clearly as I possibly can. The Lord has numbered our days. Verse 27 makes it clear that there is an appointment with death coming for everyone. And after this comes the judgment. The Greek word for appointed means to be reserved, to be laid up for each of us. This is an appointment that we will keep. We can blow off all sorts of appointments in this life. The doctor visit that you've been dreading. The dental cleaning. The check engine light in your car. The difficult phone call with an estranged friend or family member. We cannot blow off an appointment that the Lord has set. We do not know when that hour is. It could be today, next week, or next year. Some of us may live to a ripe old age. Others may pass in our youth. You don't have to turn there. Just please listen to Job chapter 14. Listen to God's word. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of the unclean? There is not one. Since his days are determined and the number of months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. There is an appointment coming for each of us. And there's nothing that we can do to prolong our lives a millisecond longer than the Lord allows. Eating healthy, exercise, doctor visits, they're all wise things to do. But they cannot stop this appointment. We can distract ourselves with work, family, television, hobbies. Yet being distracted will not slow down this appointment. The clock is ticking away. Minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, until the Lord blows out our candle. And then comes judgment. Every unclean thought... Every act of disobedience, every moment of unbelief will be heaped up. Every sin that we have ever committed will be laid open and exposed before Christ who has all authority to judge our sins. There are many who will dismiss this as foolishness. Others will use medication to numb their minds against the reality of their sin and the condemnation to come. What will you say on the day of your appointment? What defense will you give? You'll have no defense. There is no second chances once we pass into death. All unbelievers will have no other choice but to be prostrate before the Son of God as we recognize that we have rejected the great high priest who took our place as the sacrifice and sin bearer that we deserved. As a sacrifice, as the sin, let me back that up. He took the place for our sins. 
they will realize that they rejected the judge who took their punishment. And unbelievers will have no clemency at this moment. The only thing that we will receive if we reject Christ is the white-hot wrath of God poured out on us because we rejected the greatest gift that was ever given. Salvation freely offered through Christ who gave his life for us. There are only two choices. Either you are an enemy of Christ or you have been washed in his blood and received forgiveness. We have one life, one opportunity to throw ourselves upon the mercy of Christ who suffered and died once to save us from our sins. Our greatest need today is not finances, it's not health, it's not marriage, it's not work, it's not family, it's not peace, it's not security, it's not an honest government. Our greatest need is to have our sins forgiven through faith in Christ who suffered and died and took the wrath in our place. Scripture is clear that the Lord has numbered our days on earth and that death is approaching. Today is the day to repent and trust this gospel. Look to Christ, our mediator. Look to Christ, our redeemer. Look to Christ, our great high priest. Look to Christ, the one who shed his blood for the atonement of your sins, providing eternal redemption with God. This brings us to application number two. That is that Christ will appear a second time to save his elect. This application is for the other group, those who have repented of their sins and trusted the gospel. Although there is an appointed day of death that should be met with fear for all unbelievers, those who have been born again through saving faith in Christ have nothing to fear at all. Rather, this is a joyous event where our faith will be made sight. There is a theme in Hebrews that we should not overlook. The author has consistently repeated the word once. When he stated that Christ died once for all in 727, when he entered the holy place once for all in 912, when he offered himself once to bear the sins of many in 928. We could say that the word better is the author's favorite word and once is his second favorite word. But things change in verse 28 when he states that he will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who were awaiting him. Now you reply, I thought I was already saved. Yes, this is true. How are you saved? By faith. But your salvation is not yet complete. Believers are justified at the moment of salvation, the moment that we believe in Jesus Christ. And believers are being saved daily from the power of sin. Yet there is a future day when Christ returns and we will be fully and finally saved from the power of sin and death. Now, as we consider how Hebrews contrast the high priest to Christ and sacrificial animals to the death of Christ in the tabernacle to the heavenly throne room of God, there's a monumental truth that we cannot overlook. At no time did any of the earthly high priests complete their work so effectively and so finally that they were able to bring the Israelites into the tabernacle before the presence of God. Year after year, the high priests went in, but the people always remained outside the tent. Yet Christ's one-time death was so complete, so perfect, and so final that he not only remains as a mediator before the presence of God, but he will return a second time to bring all the saints, past, present, and future with him into the throne room of God, where we enjoy his presence forever for eternity. Now, if you think about the sense of joy that the Israelites experienced when they saw their high priest return from the tabernacle on the Day of Atonement, how much more joy will we have when Christ returns. Whether you were saved 30 years ago or 30 seconds ago, you must continue to hold fast to Christ 
as you eagerly await his return, knowing what our Savior has to offer is far better than anything in this life. Turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 21. We'll get a little glimpse of this. Revelation 21 states, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. At this point, the bride of Christ will be united with the Lamb of God, who died to redeem us from our sins. Satan will be conquered, sin will be destroyed, death will be no more, the first things will have passed away, and the tabernacle will be among the people. And what a joyous day this will be. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.